Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center, L3C. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bridging Chicago. I'm Savannah Roundtree, a law clerk at SATC Law and one of the hosts of Bridging Chicago. And sitting with me today, we have Dr. Alex Lickerman. Dr. Lickerman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, Dr. Lickerman is the founder and CEO of Imagine MD, and um, I'm really excited to get into that because I think um, his medical practice is uh, slightly different than maybe the typical medical practice that you're used to. But uh, before we get into that, we're going to start with you know, how you got to be the esteemed doctor that you are today. And so as I was doing my research, the first thing that I saw was that you went to the University of Chicago to get your bachelor's degree, correct? I did. And so um, are you a Chicago native? I am. I actually grew up in a suburb of Chicago, Highland Park. Okay. And uh, I remember when I was a kid thinking about what college I go to, my father was uh, very high in the University of Chicago. Okay. When I learned that it was on the south side of Chicago, I said, there's no way I'm going. <laughs> but uh, that's actually where I ended up going both to college and medical school. Yeah, um, I actually spent some time at UChicago as well. I got uh, my master's degree ah, from there. Neat. Yeah, so um, interesting place. And I saw that you got a BA in English. Yeah. Um, which I, I have one of those as well. And I'm always glad to see people with BAs in English because it's one of those degrees that people are like, what are you doing with that? So I'm always glad that? to see yeah. someone who's not an English teacher with an English yeah. degree. You know, it's interesting. I thought I, I, I love writing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a writer. I thought the best way to learn to be a writer would be to be a reader sure. and get an yeah. English degree. And I figured I'd get all the science of medical school and that's how it happened. Okay. So that was my next question is, was medical school always the plan? It was uh, from a very young age, and actually, if you ask most doctors, the statistics on this suggest that most doctors know they want to be a doctor at a very young age, interestingly. In college, I had a uh, moment of crisis where I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. I thought about being a writer, Mm -hmm. and I thought about being a painter, because I also paint. But I also thought, you know, I really don't want to struggle to be poor all my life. (laughs) So I just, my solution was I'd do both. And one way or another, I've sort of mostly done that. Yeah. That's great. So um, did you always know you were going to go to, like, once you were at UChicago, was that to the goal to keep going to UChicago? No, actually, uh, it was not. Um, uh, and undergraduate in University of Chicago is very different from graduate school at University of yeah. Chicago. Um and I got accepted to a couple of medical schools, but uh, UFC was just the best one. And okay. uh, it was an easy transition, and I figured I'd go somewhere else for my residency, which is what I ended up mm-hmm. doing. So I didn't mind staying there. I really loved the University of Chicago. Yeah. I really did. Yeah. Um, something I know about the University of Chicago is they sort of have the, the life of the mind mentality. Yes. And so sometimes um, their teaching strategies can be a little bit different, and it's more about... Um, you know, creatively thinking through problems and things like that rather than necessarily um, a rigid structure. And so I was wondering if that bled into the medical school as well, or because to me, uh, medical science seems like something that's probably like, these are the things you have to do. Yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of that because Mm -hmm. there's a baseline amount of knowledge you have to acquire and a certain number of facts you just have to have. But it did bleed there. And in fact, that's part of the reason I stayed because uh, the University of Chicago really 
attracts and retains students who are in love with ideas mm -hmm. and intellectual rigor and uh, thinking critically about everything. And that's me. Yeah. That's my personality. Uh, and in the medical school, you, you had to remember all the facts and learn all that stuff. But we were not taught uh, specifically with the end goal of, for example, passing the boards. In okay. fact, that's one of the things that, that the school had in the past been criticized for, but it took a special pride in not doing that because it was, in fact, aiming to train medical scientists. Interesting. And since I've been out in private practice now, and I'm sure we'll get to that uh, yeah. recently, uh, I've learned that there is a really an enormous difference in the type of thinking that doctors bring to bear on medicine. Yeah, I had thought about the difference there. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, there is definitely a difference between a medical scientist and a doctor. There is. And so it's interesting to think that UChicago is more towards the medical scientist, but still, obviously, it is also producing doctors. Yes. Um, so it's interesting. Um, and so then after graduating from UChicago, I see that you did your, res your residency at the University of Iowa. Yes. Um, so how is that different from how did Chicago? I, how did I end up in <laughs> Iowa? My roommates at the time made fun of me for thinking I would go to Iowa. Um, it, was, it was very different, uh, which was good, because mm -hmm. one of the dangers of staying in the same place is you start to think that the way you do things and think about things at the place you are currently residing is the only way. Right. And I learned very quickly that a lot of what I thought was written in bedrock and was established fact was, in fact, just uh, standard for that location, for the U of C. Mm -hmm. So that was great. I chose the University of Iowa because it was one of the two residency programs I applied to that uh, enabled their first-year residents, the interns, to mm -hmm. function um, independently. There's oh, okay. a lot of independence given. Mm -hmm. The other one was Johns Hopkins that I did not match at. Uh, I didn't get in there. So uh, I matched at the University of Iowa, and it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. So how long is a residency for? So in internal medicine, which is mm -hmm. the type of medicine I practice, it's three years. Okay. So you were in Iowa for three years mm -hmm. doing that? Yep. And then you ended up going back to the University of Chicago um, to work as a primary care physician? Is I that did. I, and I never thought I would do that. Really? Um, so what happened at the end of my three years of residency is I knew I wanted to practice academic medicine as opposed to private practice because I wanted to teach. Okay. I so is that the, the difference? Could you just... Yeah, academic yeah. medicine is teaching? So uh, partly. depends on your field. So in okay. internal medicine, general internal medicine, uh, there are researchers. They okay. tend to do uh, uh, research, not so much um, uh, basic science research, but clinical research, if, okay. they, if they do that at all. But most of academic general internists like me are teachers, and they are okay. the ones who are staffing the medical schools, the academic medical schools around the country. Uh, and that's the difference between academics and private practice, where you're pretty much going out just to put up a shingle and practice mm -hmm. uh, medicine, where there's not a lot of teaching. Yeah. And so while you're um, teaching at UChicago, you're also um, seeing patients. Yes. Correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and so you are a primary care physician for a little while, and then I saw that you were also a hospitalist. Yes. What does that mean? I was one of the first hospitalists in the country, actually. Okay. So... Uh, a hospitalist uh, is a doctor who basically spends all of his or her time uh, tending on the inpatient wards and taking care of patients who are admitted to the hospital. So he okay. or she will not have their own uh, panel of patients that they see in the outpatient realm. Oh, They're okay. just taking care of folks who are sick enough to need to be admitted to the hospital. And in the uh, mid to late 90s, this movement was picking up steam. And at the University of Chicago, there was a researcher mm -hmm. in general medicine who wanted to study uh, its effect because we didn't really know if having patients in the hospital cared for a hospitalist as opposed to the, the traditional system where it was just 
outpatient primary care doctors taking turns rotating on the inpatient ward, which was better. Right. And it turned out, not surprisingly, anything you do more of, you get better at, and, and the outcomes were, were actually quite quite better on the on the hospital's ward. Right. That's very interesting. Um, and so then I saw that you were um, promoted to being both the director of primary care, and it seemed like sort of simultaneously you were also a physician physician champion. Yeah. Um, so could you just explain mm-hmm. a little bit about what both of those jobs entailed? Sure. So director of primary care, the University of Chicago's uh, uh, primary care doctors work in a clinic called the primary care group. Mm-hmm. And I was the medical director of that for seven years. I had never okay. intended to go into administration. That had never okay. been my goal. Yeah. And how I got there is kind of a long and boring story, mm-hmm. but I, I got sort of tapped on the shoulder and mm-hmm. they said, do you want to do this? And I said, oh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I'll give that a try. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. So I actually ran a 40 physician group there. Okay. Um, and while I was doing that, they tapped me on the shoulder again to become the physician champion of the EPIC project. So mm-hmm. uh, around this time is when electronic medical records were really becoming popular. Right. The transition from paper record to electronic record was beginning to happen. And they needed a physician champion to lead the way uh, okay. of the implementation. So I doubled doing that. And that I did that for about five years. Okay. So it seems like a lot more administrative work yes. and less uh, seeing patients. Yes. Are you still seeing patients during I, this time? I am seeing patients the entire time. But what's happened is I've dramatically reduced the, the number of patients I see okay. down to a very small panel of patients. Okay. Um, and so as, the, as a director of this group, um, is that... Um, Mostly administration, or is it also, I mean, is it still partly like a teaching role, like guiding these other doctors that right. you are directing? No, it's not. Okay. What's interesting is I ended up being the supervisor for a number of uh, attending physicians who had taught me when I was a medical student, oh, really? so it was a little <laughs> awkward at first. Uh, for the first 10 years of my 20-year career at UFC, I was a teacher. The last 10 mm-hmm. years, I was more an administrator. So my job really was to make the clinic run and right. to make the doctor's lives endurable mm-hmm. and the patient's lives healthy. Okay. And so I was I worked with an administrator and she and I together basically ran the clinic. Okay. And so is this sort of a job that you just sort of have to learn as you go? Because I'd imagine that medical school is all about teaching yeah. you the medicine and how to do right. it and not how to right. administer a group of doctors. I had no training in this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I had was an administrative director who technically reported to me who ended up mentoring me. Okay. And she basically taught me how to do it. I also had the, the mentorship of the uh, chairman of medicine at the time, and uh, who was a very experienced administrator, and they taught me how to do it. And it was uh, uh, a lot of common sense. It was a lot of learning on the job. And mm-hmm. then it was, frankly, having a moral compass that guided me in making decisions because around this time, a lot of the forces in healthcare were beginning to put pressure on the hospital and all of the divisions, including mine, okay. to make choices that were not necessarily in the best interest of the patients we served. Right. Yeah. I like. I don't want this to get um, too political, but I did um, wonder, seeing that you're heavily involved in the administration, and I know that um, the University of Chicago's medical uh, center has had issues with. Uh, trauma centers and gun violence. Obviously, it is located in the south side of Chicago. And, you know, how do you balance, you know, obviously, as an administrator, you have um, 
these other governmental concerns. There's lots of um, restrictions and things that guide you there. But also, you know, first and foremost, you are a medically trained doctor and you do have this sort of oath to your patients. So how do you go about balancing those things? In principle, it was actually easy for me because Mm -hmm. my priorities were very clear. And my priority was first and foremost to do everything that both, first and foremost, ensures our patients are getting the best possible care Mm -hmm. and are being protected financially as best as possible. And then secondly, to take care of the doctors who are uh, uh, taking care of those patients. Mm -hmm. And that was my my job, that was my charter, and that's what I fought for. And a lot of times orders would come down where I would be asked to do things because the hospital had pressures being put on it from outside and also internally because they had their goals, their hospital-wide mm-hmm. goals, that were uh, directly in opposition to what I thought was our top priority. And I would I would stand up. And sometimes I would win and sometimes I would lose. And yeah. the, the reason I ultimately left that job is because I was asked to do one or two things that crossed a line for me. Okay. And I just could not uh, continue to feel that I was doing the best job for the patients and the doctors and continue with that role. Yeah, I'd imagine that that can be a very uh, difficult uh, choices to make yep. there. And so before we get into leaving you Chicago, I think that while you were still there, you wrote your first book. You said before that you uh, managed to you know, be a writer and a doctor. And so your first book is called The Undefeated Mind. Uh, it came out in 2012. And um, I've read some, uh, I've read up on it a little bit, but rather than me sort of butcher it, I'll just, uh, you know, ask you what, what that's about and sure. sort of how you came to writing it. The story of how I came to write it was I'd always wanted to be a writer. What I, what I was actually most interested in writing was fiction. Okay. Uh, this is nonfiction. And the way it came about was I started a blog in 2008 and, uh, thinking that, um, around that time, as I was imagining what kind of writing career I wanted to have, that you have to sort of. Uh, create an audience. And mm-hmm. blogging was a big thing then. And so I thought, well, I have a lot to say and I'll start saying it and amass an audience and I'll promote my book to that group. What happened was an editor from a uh, imprint of Penguin okay. found my blog okay. and wrote me out of nowhere and said, I love your blog. I love your voice. And if you're interested in writing a nonfiction book mm-hmm. around some of these topics in this voice, I'd, be lo- I'd love to look at that proposal. Okay. So I Googled her and figured out that she was real. I got very excited. This is sort of a blogger's dream. And uh, wrote her back and said, uh, yeah, I have an idea. Uh, Well, I didn't. And uh, and, uh, quickly came up with one. And what I was interested in writing about and what I thought I had something to say about uh, that was helpful and unique was about resilience. Mm -hmm. And so The Undefeated Mind, the book, that's the ultimate title that we came up with, uh, is really the thesis of the book is that resilience is not something you are either lucky enough to be born with or unlucky enough to be born without, but something everyone can take very specific steps to develop. And that there's an an explosion of science in the psychological literature in the last 20 years or so Mm -hmm. that supports ideas that I drew from Buddhism uh, that um, are, you know, contained in this 2,500-year-old Buddhist philosophy that now have been validated by science. And I mm-hmm. organized the book around principles in, in Buddhism, okay. but supported by science. And so it, I don't like the term self-help. I think about it more as science help. But the idea okay. was with these these ideas, you can apply them in your own life and develop your resilience to the, its greatest capacity. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely see your um, U Chicago <laughs> training coming out in those themes. And so is this related to... Um, your um, the resilience project, which I think is now called um, Undefeated Minds. Yes. So 
what we did is, this is around the time that I actually took on the last administrative job I had at UFC, which was as the director of student health. Okay. And when I was interviewing for that job, I was in the middle of writing this book, and I, I said in that interview that the reason I was interested in taking the job at all, mm-hmm. not just to try to fix the broken student health system, right. but I wanted to create a program mm-hmm. based on the research I was doing to help students at the UFC not just be inculcated in the life of the mind, but actually become resilient. Because mm-hmm. the feedback that the UFC had been getting from prospective employers was that the students really had lost that sense of resilience. They become fragile in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I think this is actually a generational issue mm-hmm. for a lot of people of that generation. And we could, you know, that's an entire other topic about why that is. But <laughs> right. um, I had a very specific plan that I wanted to operationalize the topics, the ideas I was talking about in the book and turn it into a curriculum. Okay. And that's what we did. Oh, okay. And then we studied it. And uh, because it's the University of Chicago, we study everything. Study everything. And we discovered that a year out of the course that um, students were not only about 10% more resilient than they were beginning it based on some standard measures in the psychological literature, but the rates of depression and anxiety decreased to that level equal to that gained by people who take medication. Okay. Um, When you say their resilience uh, was improved, what exact, what are your parameters Mm -hmm. for resilience? So we define it in two ways. There is the aspect of grit, meaning Mm -hmm. you have a goal, and as you start marching towards that goal, obstacles begin to arise in your path, as they always do. Mm -hmm. How good are you at at persisting through those obstacles and resisting discouragement to ultimately accomplish your goal? That's a measure of grit. That's Mm -hmm. that's part of what it means to be resilient, as I define it. The, The flip side of that, the other side of that coin is when adversity lands on you, Mm-hmm. And you are, uh, you know, uh, knocked off your beam. Mm-hmm. How uh, how injured is your sense of well-being, your ability to cope? How vulnerable do you become to depression and anxiety and stress, and become even dysfunctional? Or you know, that's sort of at the bottom end. And or how good are you at soldiering on and not just surviving that adversity, but even thriving in it? Right. Both of these two aspects of resilience are measurable. And so there are were, there were these validated scales we use. One's called the Connor Davidson Resilience Scale that measures the, the second of the two, like okay. how, how well are you at surviving adversity. Mm-hmm. And then the Duckworth Grit Scale. Okay. Both have been validated. So we use both of those. Okay, great. Um, and so then around this time, you begin to transition away from the University of Chicago to start your own medical practice. And you had mentioned that um, there were some decisions at UChicago that you uh, didn't really want to participate in. Um, and so were there, I assume there are many other factors involved in, you know, striking out, leaving this massive institution to sort of strike out on your own. Yeah, I never thought I'd do it. I love the University of Chicago. Right. I love being there. Uh, the, the true and honest answer is there were a number of reasons. Uh, one, of that, one of which was I had, uh, for the first time ever, uh, a boss who was really difficult to work with. Okay. was sort of an anxious micromanager mm-hmm. who was uh, preventing me from building the program in student health that I wanted to build and mm-hmm. frustrating me tremendously. The other issue was at the end of 20 years of my career there, I was having to retake the internal medicine boards for a second time. So I didn't, I wasn't old enough to grant, be grandfathered out of the need to retest the boards every 10 years to recertify. Okay. So I started studying very mm-hmm. resentfully at first. <laughs> and then as I did so, uh, you know, by this time I'm mostly an administrator. I'm seeing patients still, right. but I, I actually kind of fell in love with medicine again. Okay. 
And I thought to myself, you know, I didn't go to medical school to be an administrator the rest of my life. I did it because I want to take care of people. Right. And so the combination of the frustration I was feeling with my boss, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, I felt stymied in what I was trying to, to do in student health and, and build, mm -hmm. and suddenly my desire to get back to my roots and practice medicine, um, there was a moment where I was particularly frustrated by a decision my boss made, and I looked at my then executive administrator, mm -hmm. a woman named Melva, and said, uh, I've had enough. <laughs> and uh, she looked at me and said, me too. And, 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 we, and I said, I have a plan B, and she asked me what it was, and I said it was uh, direct primary care, which at that point we were kind of calling concierge medicine, uh -huh. something I'd flirted with throughout the years but didn't feel that the world was yet ready for. Right. And I felt now that it was and that I was ready for it. Okay. So uh, that day I called my wife and said, are you sitting down? I'm ready. <laughs> and she said, ready for what? And I said, I'm ready to strike out on my own and do this. Because she and I had discussed it. She's in mm -hmm. business and was much more interested in my doing this than I ever was. Okay. And so basically that's how it started. Okay. So you sort of had this plan. Um, so how do you even go about, um, you know, starting, like, as I said before, medical school doesn't really <laughs> prepare you for this business. And obviously being an administrator had given you um, some more insight into how you might run a medical practice, I would imagine. But I'm sure there's just so many things to consider. Yeah, I basically had no idea. And uh, I just figured, as I've always figured, I'll figure it out. Now, I, I had a secret weapon, which my wife, uh, Rhea, right. who is, uh, she is her own, she's a business owner, mm -hmm. and she's incredibly good at it. And um, so she and Melva and I began meeting weekly to mm -hmm. map out, literally every weekend, Melva would come over to our house, and we would map out um, what we need to do on a timeline right. to be ready to open this was in March of 2015. We wanted mm -hmm. to open in January of 2016. Right. And so we literally mapped out a timeline, wrote a business plan. Rhea is a commercial real estate broker. Um, okay. So she started looking for space. Um, Melvin and I attended a conference on this that okay. sort of to learn the ins and outs of what, you know, how you think about it. How, mm -hmm. There's so many questions to answer. Yeah. And we just made a plan. Mm -hmm. We found the funding and got the space. We announced we were leaving the University of Chicago six months before we did. I wanted to give them plenty of notice. Sure. And then uh, December 31st, we left. Wow. Um, so you mentioned that before you didn't think the world was ready for what you call direct primary care. And so um, if you could just explain exactly what you mean by direct primary care and what it was about the world being in transition. that Yeah. Direct primary care is uh, a different way of paying for primary care than the current fee-for-service model. So mm -hmm. the current model is called fee-for-service because that's how you pay for what right. you get. You you go and obtain a service, which could be an office visit in a primary care physician's office. Mm -hmm. Could be a surgery. Could be an MRI that someone writes for you. It's a service for which you pay a fee. But mostly it's not you paying the fee. It's your insurance company right. paying the fee. You may have uh, out-of-pocket expenses associated with that, mm -hmm. but it's mostly not you. Uh, there's a lot of problems with the fee-for-service system, and because of the levels of reimbursement that have evolved in primary care, it kind of explains why primary care and therefore all of medicine is such a disaster. Okay. Why it takes so long to see your primary care doctor. The average length of time when you pick up the phone to see your primary care doctor until when you can see him or her is 24 days. Wow. And then when you get to see him or her, the average length of time you get to spend is 15.7 minutes. Wow. So that kind of explains why... Most of America is incredibly frustrated with their healthcare experience right. in general. In fact, most people think about primary care as just a quick stop on the way to a specialist. Mm -hmm. So direct primary care is an entirely different model. It's called direct primary care because there is no insurance carrier in between the doctor and the patient at all. Okay. So we do not bill insurance for anything. 
We bill patients directly a membership fee. It's literally like a gym membership. You pay okay. a fixed monthly fee mm-hmm. for unlimited access to your doctor. Uh, new patient appointments are two hours long. Wow. Return appointments are an hour long. They're scheduled the same day or the next day a patient calls for them. Mm-hmm. You have 24-7 access directly to your doctor. So in the middle of the night, if you have, say, a headache and you think you're having a stroke and you pick up the phone and you call the number, you're not getting a, uh, an answering service. You're not getting a bank of nurses. You're not even getting a colleague. You're getting your doctor. Wow. Mm-hmm. who has the highest level of training and highest no- level of knowledge of you and your medical history. And the studies show that when you get this kind of care, where you have that kind of immediate access and that kind of time to spend with the, your doctor, that not only is the quality of care dramatically higher, mm-hmm. the cost of care is lower. Right. And the reason the cost of care is lower, even though you're paying this fee mm-hmm. outside of your insurance, right. in addition to your insurance, is because the number of ER visits you then have to make, the number of specialty visits you're referred for, mm-hmm. number of tests, surgeries, inpatient admissions, all dramatically go down. Because what's happened is the fee-for-service world has become the outlier in unnecessary overutilization of healthcare resources. You're, you can't get in to see your doctor, so you go to the ER. Right. Your doctor doesn't have enough time to figure out what's wrong with you, so they send you mm-hmm. to a neurologist. Or your diabetes gets out of control, you get admitted to the hospital. Right. But with primary care functioning as it should function, it returns that spending mm-hmm. to normal. And the last thing I'll say is it's not just the money, but it actually is protective for patients. Because every time in medicine we do something to you, every mm-hmm. scan we do, every procedure we, we put you through has a certain number of or level of risk. Right. And at the level of the population, if you look back, actually the number of people who are harmed, actually killed mm-hmm. every year as a result of tests and procedures that we perform on them in the healthcare system is a staggering 686,000 people. Wow. Now, we wouldn't do these things if the number of people whose lives we save were not greater. Well, right. <laughs> the point, though, is what you really want to reduce is the number of unnecessary mm-hmm. times, the number of times you do this when it's unnecessary. And that's what direct primary care is so good at. Yeah, it sounds like you get to be more engaged in things like preventative care um, rather than you know always addressing a problem. Because I feel like you know, I rarely go see a doctor unless like I have a problem. But if I was paying for a doctor every month and I like had something wrong, I'd be much more uh, likely to just like call them up um, and, you know. That's exactly the idea. I mean, the idea is to to be able to begin to access your doctor in a way that you never think about now because you just can't get through to them. And prevention becomes more than just education, right? Mm -hmm. You know, some people who smoke know they should quit smoking. People who want to lose weight know they should eat less and exercise more. You can't Mm -hmm. just say that and expect people to actually change their behavior. We've actually learned in the last 20 or 30 years a lot about what type of behaviors are the healthiest behaviors. And we've also learned psychologically how do we get people to alter their behavior so that they actually follow those healthy behaviors. But mm-hmm. those conversations take a lot of time yeah. that you don't have in fee-for-service primary right. care. How many people do you have at your practice? How many doctors are engaged in uh, So model? right now, uh, in our current office downtown Chicago, there are two doctors. We have okay. room for a third. And we're in discussions with uh, three other locations uh, around the country, actually. Two in the suburbs, one in uh, Virginia to open other offices. Because that's our plan is to scale the company. Yeah. So that I was sort of leading up to... Um, is this a model that it, you're seeing come up across the country? I know that you're often engaged in speaking mm-hmm. and writing articles and things. So is this something that's um, you see picking up momentum? Yeah, it's actually exploding. Really? So what's happening, what's driving it is actually uh, 50% of all primary care doctors actually are burning out and want to quit. Oh. It's, it's actually as, as much as patients hate the current medical system, doctors mm-hmm. hate it equally as much. Right. They don't feel they can do a good job. They're overwhelmed by documentation requirements, insurance billing requirements. Um, they hate it. Yeah. 
So a number of them are slowly but surely transitioning their practices from traditional fee-for-service to direct primary care. But it takes a lot. It takes a lot of uh, appetite for risk. It takes Mm -hmm. a big capital investment. And our our goal is to grow the company because we want to take the risk out of that equation. So Mm -hmm. by actually taking on the risk and and bringing on doctors as W-2 employees, we'll say, we're going to pay you 10, 20% above market, mm-hmm. you're going to go from seeing 20 to 24 patients a day to maybe seeing six. Okay. You're going to actually rediscover your families, really enjoy medicine and actually practice at the level you, you train for and, and enjoy. Because every single doctor I've talked to who's done this, who's mm-hmm. made this transition, has said the same thing that I felt, which right. is they rediscover their love for medicine and patient care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sort of seems like your model is better for the doctors and the patients. And All right. Um, and... So then, very recently, you have written another book, um, The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness. And so um, this sort of seems to me, from what I was reading, um, sort of like a next step up from your ideas on resilience. Um, So if you could just explain a little bit more. Yeah, that's actually kind of exactly what it was. You know, I wrote the book about resilience because my underlying belief is that um, you cannot be happy if you do not have inner strength. Mm-hmm. Life throws too many obstacles your way, and there are too many traumas and tragedies that we all have to deal with by the time we reach middle to old age. And if you're not able to withstand those uh, those traumas, you can't possibly be happy. But there's also more to being happy than that. And it's a model. Uh, we create a we introduce a new model of what um, what happiness is and what it takes to be happy that we haven't seen. And I say we because I wrote this with my best friend from college, who is a clinical psychologist. Okay. And so we've created a new psychological paradigm, once again drawn from a model uh, from Buddhist philosophy, and have introduced a lot of research that supports our, our thesis. And our thesis basically is that the single best predictor of, of how happy you are and how happy you're able to be mm-hmm. is, in fact, what you believe happiness is and what you need it to be. Okay. And so we actually tell 10 stories, 10, 10 uh, uh, case reports of patients that my, uh, my co-author, uh, who's a psychologist, was seeing in therapy okay. and give you a behind-the-scenes view of how we were thinking about their issues and their problems from the context of this paradigm we created to mm-hmm. sort of figure out what it was that they believed they needed to be happy and how that was putting the ceiling on their ability to be happy. Okay. And then the last chapter, we talk about um, a different type of happiness that we call absolute happiness, which up until now has been this idea that is attainable only by Buddhist monks meditating right. in caves in Tibet, <laughs> uh, this notion that enlightenment mm-hmm. is a real thing. It turns out there is uh, an enormous amount of scientific data supporting the existence, the possibility of this state, and pointing mm-hmm. the way for each one of us, if we're interested in, in aiming at it and, and pursuing a practice that, that um, brings it out of us, to, to be actually able to achieve it. Um, that's very interesting. I have um, a couple of degrees in religious studies, and so um, I find that a lot of people think that these um, older ideas about philosophy and enlightenment and stuff are sort of diametrically opposed to Western science. Um, so I'm always intrigued to hear people talking about how actually they can coexist together and they can inform each other because, um, you know, a lot of these things do, um, when you test them, have a scientific backing. Absolutely. In fact, our, our, our point about this is that enlightenment is not a mystical, far-off, supernatural state, but actually a very real brain state that has neurologic correlates that... Mm-hmm. Um, is fascinating to study, and we're just beginning to study it. And um, it's—I think it's not just um, uh, you know 
congruent with science, but it's based on science. Right. It really can be. Yeah. Um, that's, that's very interesting. I'm very intrigued. Um, so sort of the, I've got a couple, you know, wrap up questions here. And so my first one was, um, what is something that, um, doctors want their patients like to know either about medicine or about doctoring, like before, like, like maybe a misperception or something you should know about medical field when you are you know, out there? A lot of things come to mind, but I'll say this one. I spent a lot of my time having to correct misconceptions about um, alternative medicine mm -hmm. and what medicine can do and what its real limits are. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people, because I think the reason this happens is because people don't get to spend a lot of time with their traditional doctors, but alternative practitioners have a lot more time to spend with patients, mm -hmm. so are able to engender that all-important trust Mm -hmm. But the problem is a lot of these alternative medicine um, practices are not based on science at all. Mm -hmm. And people get pulled in because they sound good, right. but they're really not based on science. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would like people to be critical thinkers. That's okay. my UFC background <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <laughs> and be skeptical of everything their doctors tell them and ask for proof, right? Okay. I mean, uh, we should there should be reasons why we think a particular therapy or test are, will work and are necessary. Yeah. And I think we put our faith in alternative medicine to our detriment. Okay. And then my final question is just a sort of a question that I ask all of our guests is if you, um, if there was someone like a younger 20 something getting ready to start in this field, your field, um, what advice would you give to them? This is actually a really exciting time to be going into medicine. For, for the last two decades, uh, most practitioners have been very sour on it and have discouraged people from going into it. Okay. I've never felt that way because I love medicine. I mm -hmm. love taking care of people. It's a, it's a um, privilege to be mm -hmm. able to um, uh, be trusted by patients because uh, mm -hmm. you're often dealing with true life and death issues or even more commonly just quality of life issues. And so what I, I, I would tell someone who's young is that if your passion is medicine, if you have a passion for biology, for critical thinking and for taking care of people, it's a fantastic field. The way in which medicine is being practiced is rapidly evolving. We're seeing great change right now. And so uh, it's not going to stay the way it is because it can't because right. it's so dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And this grassroots movement of people like me who are in direct primary care practices and many other other people in the other aspects of the healthcare system are working on fixing it, I'm very optimistic about the future. And so I actually think it's a great time to do it. It requires a lot of sacrifice. It requires a lot mm -hmm. of work. But uh, it's it's uh, there is no field like it. It's actually just the most incredibly satisfying profession I could think of for myself. Great. Um, so unless you have anything else that you want to talk about today, um, where can people like find you if they want to. So they can find me uh, at our uh, company website, which is www.imaginemd, all okay. one word, dot net, okay. not dot com. Uh, and uh, there are links to my bio there. And I have a, an author page, which is alexlickerman.com. But you can find that on the company website as well. Okay, great. Um, so I think that about covers it for today. Uh, thanks again for joining us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much okay. for having me. for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltg.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is 
at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.